morning again, everyone. We are continuing my series on overcoming fear. Um, and this morning is one that's probably close to my heart, but one that I think we need to, to talk about, and that's overcoming fear of leadership. Um, and it may or may not be as you think, but let's pray together. Father, we just want to thank you for the people that you've provided in our lives. We thank you, Lord, for just the way that you, you guide us and you direct us. And, Father, the way that you prepare the way for us. God, we just really want to honour you and bless you in Jesus' name. Amen. The passage we're going to read today is from Numbers chapter 12. We're going to read all of Numbers 12 today. Uh, so just if you've got it there, follow along. I think um, it's on the overhead, I think. Yes, it is. Great. Um, so Miriam and Aaron began to talk against Moses because of his Cushite wife, for he had married a Cushite. Has the Lord spoken only through Moses, they asked? Hasn't he also spoken through us and the Lord heard this? Now Moses was a very humble man, more humble than anyone else on the face of the earth. We were talking about this at Alpha and just wondering if Moses wrote this book, did he insert this or did somebody else insert it later? Anyway, it was a topic of discussion. Verse, verse 4. At once the Lord said to Moses, Aaron and Miriam, come out of the tent of meeting, all three of you. So the three of them went out. Then the Lord came down in a pillar of cloud and he stood at the entrance of the tent and summoned Aaron and Miriam. When the two of them stepped forward, he said, listen to my words. When there is a prophet among you, I, the Lord, reveal myself to them in visions. I speak to them in dreams. But this is not true of my servant Moses. He is faithful in all of my house. With him I speak face to face, clearly and not in riddles. He sees the form of the Lord. Why then were you not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? The anger of the Lord burned against them and he left, and he left them. When the cloud lifted from above the tent, Miriam's skin was leprous. It became as white as snow. Aaron turned toward her and saw that she had the defiling skin disease. And he said to Moses, Please, my Lord, I ask you not to hold against us the sin we have so foolishly committed. Do not let her be like a stillborn infant coming from its mother's womb with its flesh half eaten away. So Moses cried out to the Lord, Please, God, heal her. The Lord replied to Moses, if her father had spit in her face, would she not have been a, a disgrace for seven days? Confine her outside the camp for seven days, that she, may, that she can be brought back. So Miriam was confined outside the camp for seven days, and the, cup, and the people did not move on till she was brought back. After that, the people left Hazelroth and encamped in the desert of Paran. Okay. You may have some preconceptions when you read this verse about what it means to not be worried about leadership. I, I have this tendency, I have this tendency to um, go down rabbit holes sometimes. Um, and on, I, I, I like to listen to podcasts. I'm usually driving a lot and I like to um, take in content while I'm driving, use the time wisely. And I listened, I think it was back in 2021, I listened to a podcast called The Rise and, Hill of Mar Rise and Fall of Mars Hill. Has anybody listened to that podcast at all? Yeah. So 
In that, it just outlined the rise of a church, the abusive leadership, and the imminent decline thereof, to the point where all of the satellite churches were broken up into individual ones, and then they ended up failing as well. The leader of that church moved to Scottsdale, Arizona, and started up a new church, and I've been listening to some new podcasts, and it would appear that the cycle of control and abuse just keeps going. I, when I talk about not being afraid of leadership, what I'm saying is that I believe that leadership is a gift. But leadership, it's a gift for those who have got it. It's a gift for the congregations and the communities that they lead in. But it's not a... It's not a... Um, it's not permission to just do what you want, can't blanche. It's not about that. And so, as I listen, and, and, and this is the problem that I have, I listen to, to one podcast and I go, I'll go and listen to this, because somebody said this, I'll go and listen to that, and, da, 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 and I end up down the rabbit hole. Um, and, um, and so, it's easy to kind of get sucked into all of that. And, and, and the, the, the temptation is to think that all leaders are bad. C- can I tell you that isn't the case? Can I tell you that the majority of leaders that I know are just really godly people trying to make a difference? And working with a number of leaders in multiple churches, um, most of them are just trying to do the best that they can under the influence of God in their life. Do I occasionally run into a bully? Yes, I do. Uh, But it's few and far between. And so it's really important that we understand what is godly leadership, why people are leaders, and how do we respond, and how do we follow without giving everything if you know what I mean. So, and, and social media has just created this, this era where, where all of the negative stuff, and the fact that I can listen to all these podcasts or you can watch it on YouTube, means that all the social media just flushes all this out. And you can think, man, church is going to the pack. In fact, there are probably more people going to church now, maybe that weren't. And people are rediscovering church it's like if you're doing your research on a vehicle you might go i want to research the whatever it is the new mitsubishi triton ute and you have all of these you all of these views of people who say they're fantastic but then you have the odd one here they go oh, that's rubbish you can't do this can't do that it's gutless it's this it's that blah 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 and all that negative stuff you can start to think oh man maybe that's what it maybe that's what it is The reality is there's no perfect car, there's no perfect church, there's no perfect leader, there's no perfect congregation. We are all flawed in some ways. All of us. And if we don't think we're flawed, then maybe you should come and chat to me and I can recommend a psychologist for you to talk to. (laughs) This is just the reality of life. It's part of living in a fallen world. And so 
My question is, um, oh, can we just go back from that? I, I just, I've, got, I've got my lead up into that, Sue. I'll give you the nod when I want to go into that. Let's not give too much away. So, there are, so in this passage, there are a number of things going on. Aaron and Miriam confront Moses, and the excuse they give is that it's because of his Cushite wife. But really what the issue is, is the access that Moses has to God. And we know this for a number of reasons. is because when God addresses the problem, what does he talk about? He doesn't talk about Moses' Cushite wife, does he? He talks about, I meet with Moses as no one else does. Now, the old question, what comes first, the chicken or the egg? Moses, it says here that it, regardless of whether Moses inserted this himself or not, which I doubt that he did, I, I would suggest that it was probably written by scribes. These guys didn't... Ha- if, you go, if you go to the story of Moses um, seeing people with complaint, you know, and Jethro, his father-in-law, comes and tells him that, you know, you need to appoint people, I reckon he was too busy to write this about himself. I reckon there were probably scribes who were writing all this. And when we read that Moses was more humble than any other person of the time, I think this is the key to the access that he had with God, not his leadership position. This is the key. It was his humility. It was his desire to seek God, not the fact that he was the leader. And if you ever hear a leader pulling the trump card and saying, oh, because I'm the leader, I hear God more clearly than you, I would have some alarm bells going off in my head. Now, they might hear God very clearly when it comes to the things that they've been given responsibility for, but they're not going to hear God more clearly about what's happening in your life, let me tell you. I know of churches where... The church tells people, like if, if a couple want to get engaged, they have to go to the elders first and ask permission to get engaged. Some of you laugh, but I tell you, it happens in Brisbane. It ain't good. You know what? It's none of their business. I know of young couples that want to get married where they set a wedding date and the elders say, no, not that date, you'll get married on this date. doesn't matter that the person might be a teacher and it clashes with their semester, term. They might have to resign just to get married to appease what the elders say. I'm a little bit, I would be a little bit rebellious. I would say... Stick it up your jumper. That's been my strength and my weakness all my life. <laughs> I remember in do, when I went to Bible college, it was, what was it? It was in 1997, I think it was. I was doing Theology 102, first, second semester of Theology. And we were asked, everybody, the lecturer asked everybody to go down around the room and we were asked whether we were pre, mid or post-millennial rapture theologians. And the fact that you only get three talks about their 
narrow view anyway. And so everybody's going around the room and they're talking about it. It gets to me and I go, I, this is what I say, all of my 30-odd-year-old arrogance, I go, I refuse to answer the question on the premise that I will not be able to change my mind and be forever in a theological box. And then it moved to the next one. And my lecturer looked at me. Anyway, I went home and I got convicted. And I, I just said to the Lord, if, if, if what I said was disrespecting of the leader, leadership of my lecturer, give me opportunity to rectify that. So the next day, I go to college. I park my car in the car park. I walk up into the foyer. And who's in the foyer? My lecturer. So I said to him, I just want to apologize for my attitude because my attitude yesterday stank. But I don't apologize for my answer because I don't want to be stuck in a box. Do you know what? He and I got on like that for the remaining three years. He respected the fact that I didn't want to answer the question based on what he'd given. And I don't think he'd ever had a student apologize to him before. <laughs> but... But folks, that's respect for leadership. It's more attitudinal than it is conformity of thinking, if you get what I mean. And so I actually, I actually think we should respect leaders, but, but, I, but I don't think it's demanded and I don't think it's about conformity of thinking. And so let me just say, leaders need to stay in their lane. My belief is that my role as a leader, Lee, when he comes back, his role as a leader is to teach you what the, what the Lord wants from Scripture and how to lead your life and to be a living, breathing example of what it means to implement that and to fail at that, not to tell you who you should marry, what car you should buy, what house you should buy, where you should invest your money. That isn't the role of spiritual leadership. I'm not a financial advisor. You know when I do my budgeting, my budgeting series every year, my disclaimer, I'm not a financial advisor. I just want to teach you what the Bible says about it. And so this is, this is what we mean by staying in our lane. Anyway, so we know that that the excuse used um, was um, Moses' Cushite wife. The real problem was they were jealous of the access that Moses had with the father. If we want access to the father like others, then the key is not to usurp leadership. The key is to chase after humility until it kills you. And humility, folks, is not about perfection. You've heard me talk about this from the front. John, Dixon, John Dixon's definition of humility is using the gifts and the resources that you have for the benefit of other people, not for yourself. Do you know what abuse is? Abuse is using others to get what you want. Abuse is, using, is seeing other people as pawns to satisfy your own need. That's not humility. Humility also is knowing what you're capable of. Let's go back a little bit in Moses' life. 
What did Moses do when he saw two Egyptians fighting? Do you remember? He killed one of them. Because he saw him in the wrong. He took, he took the law into his own hands. And he thought he'd got away with it until the next week, two Israelites were fighting and one of them said to him, are you going to kill one of us like you did the Egyptian the other week? And he thought he'd got away with it and he hadn't. So that's when he hived off. Moses wasn't humble because he was perfect. Moses was humble because he was fully aware of what he could do. He was fully aware that he could kill a guy. And humility is keeping that strength intact, reined in, and using it for good, not for evil. So when we talk about leadership, leadership, folks, is other-focused. It's not self-focused. And we see that with Moses here. What happens when Miriam and Aaron are banished or when Miriam gets leprosy? What is, what is Moses' first reaction? What does he do? He prays for him. Can I tell you in leadership the hardest thing to do is to pray for somebody who hates your guts or who thinks you're Satan incarnate or thinks you've got the wrong theology. But that's what Moses did. He prayed for them. In fact, and I've already quoted, I've spent a bit of the weekend in 1 Timothy 2. And in 1 Timothy 2, Paul says that we should... There's a couple of things he says there. One, he says we should pray for our leaders. Do you know why he says we should pray for our leaders? Because if we're not praying for them, we're probably gossiping about them. We're probably bagging them. So pray for them. And then he says, I want men to lift up holy hands when they pray. Not argumentative. And do you know why he says that? Is because he could have been plonked right now in a Western church. You know, sometimes when you sit in a prayer meeting and instead of praying to God, you go, Oh, Lord, I'm just praying for Matt. You know, he just needs an attitude change. And, you know, like, I wish he'd stop heckling me from the crowd, you know. You've been in prayer meetings like that? You're not going to say. I've been in prayer meetings like that where we're supposed to be praying to God, but somebody's praying at someone to change. It's just kind of, again, it's veiled. If you've got a problem with him, talk to him about it. And by the way, I don't have a problem with Matthew. I'm just picking him because he's an easy target. And because he targets me. <laughs> um, but, but can you see what I'm saying? Like This is why Paul is saying to Timothy, let them lift holy hands and focus their prayers on God, not at attacking each other in the prayer meeting. And so, so Moses, his first response is to pray. He prays for these ones. And again, like, this I think proves his humility. This I think proves his godliness. So this is the, this is the, the thing that was, that um, I think that defines Moses as a leader worth emulating or worth 
patterning ourselves after. The other thing that happens is when Moses is accused, he doesn't defend himself. One of my faults when I was a younger leader, and I still have many now, but they were probably a few more when I was younger, was that because I grew up in a family of four boys, it was kind of extremely Darwinian in that environment. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was survival of the fittest. And, um, you know, you, if you wanted the glass of milk with the, you know, the, the, gla- the chocolate milk that, was the, that was the, had the most in it, you had to fight for it. I had one brother, when mum would pour four of them, he would get down and he would look and see. Well, was the great? Oh, no, it wasn't Matthew, no. <laughs> we, or what's the biggest piece of pizza? I want that one or the biggest piece of pat. Do you know what I mean? Like, it was just... And it wasn't... We, we got on with each other and we still get on with each other now, but it's just kind of the way we interacted. It was kind of a blokey boy thing. And so when I got into leadership, if somebody... If somebody dissed me or was, was argumentative against me, I would just burr up and go straight into the kind of Darwinian thing. And it wasn't until I learnt that I don't have to do that, that peace actually came over me. It was like, if somebody wants to complain, like if, if we, we have a good, I think we have a good, dispute process in the church if somebody's got a if i've done something wrong all you need to do is let the elders know and they will investigate it um, without fear or favor and i've had some hard questions asked of me over the years and fair enough but if you're leading something and you're doing what god wants you to do you don't have to defend yourself if if you're doing what he wants you to do, he will defend you. He will look after you. He will walk with you. It doesn't, and it doesn't matter whether you're leading a family, whether you're leading a ministry, whether you're trying to be a spiritual leader at work or leading a church or leading a business. God will walk with you in that. And he will defend you. I love, I love the words of Jesus in this where he says, wisdom is proved right by her children. Over time, right, wise decisions prove to be the correct ones. They may not have at the time, but over time we know whether we've made the right one or whether we've made a mistake. And I just also too want to say, give yourself some, cut yourself some slack. Cut your leaders some slack. Cut the people around you some slack to make mistakes. Because you know what? As sure as night turns into day, they are going to make them. And so this is what I love about Moses in this. Um, And so Miriam, she ends up, she ends up banished. She's the one with leprosy. And those of you who are ladies might say, that seems rather unfair because Aaron was part of it. It's interesting, when you go back to the original language in this particular passage, the accusation has a, a, 
it's, they use, we, we don't use it in Australia, we don't use different articles like feminine, masculine or neuter. Like when I learnt German at school, you did der, die and das. Der was masculine, die, feminine, das, neuter. And I remember asking my German teacher, why is it that certain nouns have a male, female or a neuter pre-word? And he just said, it just is. Okay, that doesn't help me at all. Uh, but, but, what we, but what we do know is in the original language that this accusation in the way that is written is feminine. And so what we can glean from that, and it's not definitive, but what we can glean from that is that Miriam was the one who kind of drove this whole thing and Aaron joined in. Doesn't mean that one's more guilty than the other, but it just means in God's economy, that's how we chose to dealt with it, deal with it. And again, going back to this, Moses didn't defend himself. It was God who defended him. It was God who stood up for him. It was God who said, what are you doing? This is the order I've got. This is what I want because it's the best way to get my people into the promised land. And it wasn't about Moses being perfect. If you remember, Moses never entered the promised land because he got angry. Instead of tapping a rock, he whacked it out of anger. Which again depicted what was going on inside of him. So there is no perfect leader, folks. There's no perfect person. It's God who assigns. It's God who anoints. It's God who leads. And we need to make sure that we are seeking him first. I hear so many people today who are more defined by the church they go to or the leader of that church than they are by the Lord himself. Can I say to you, that is the wrong way around. It's about the Lord first. If God calls you to be a part of a church, it should be because you believe in that church's values, its mission, its vision, the things that it's doing, wanting to reach the community that it's in. That's why you're part of it. And we become the extended family of God. Anyway, and we know, we know that Moses had this, this great um, capacity to intercede for leaders. If you go a little bit forward, through the week, go, we're in Exodus 12 now. Go to Exodus 16. It's a rather large story, and it talks about the rebellion of the sons of Korah. And in this, so there's a rebellion here. There's another, I mean, could you imagine Moses going, oh, not again, not again. But in the rebellion of Korah, the actual earth opened up to swallow those who were rebelling and it says that Aaron was running to get to the, God, to the staff to touch it to stop this from happening. But it wasn't until some people died that day in that rebellion. Can you see? And, and he, that just illustrates how Aaron's heart was changed to be more of an interceder for the people than one who was in it for himself. And so, folks... This is the transformative work of God in our lives. This is the transforming work of God in leaders. Um, our focus is on the Lord. But 
God gives us people and leaders and churches in our lives to be able to exercise that faithfulness to him. Anyway, so, so questions around church leadership. I've been, I have spent years thinking about this. So you get the benefit of my years of thinking. Hopefully it won't confuse you. Anyway, there are three questions. I've got a list of three. Um, and then I've got, actually, I've got a list of four, do I? I can't remember. Anyway, I've got a list of questions about where biblical leadership and secular leadership intersect. What's the first one? This one's gone out. The first one is, what makes leaders toxic, brokenness or evil? Or is it a bit of both? The, I often get people come and say to me, and my family's sick of me talking about this. So anyway, they're the guinea pigs. But when, I often get people come to me and say to me, my, the, my, my senior pastor or the leader that I'm under is a narcissist. And I'll say to them, where did you get your psychology degree to effectively diagnose your leader as a narcissist? I don't have one. I said, well, you probably can't say that. You could probably say they have some narcissistic tendencies. But let's be careful about what we, how, how we brand and accuse people. So I think sometimes power... Positional power attracts people who don't have um, wholesome values. Let's just say that sometimes. So we need, to be on, we need to be on guard for that. Second one. What's the second one? Uh, what, why do we validate toxic leaders? In a, in a book that I read many years ago by a guy called Dan B. Allender, he's a psychologist, a book called Leading with a Limp, he actually asks the question, why do we validate leaders who are in fact toxic as the church? And in fact, in the Mars Hill podcast, that was one thing that came out. And you know what? why we do that? It's because we're broken as well. And the other reason is, what tends to happen is, if you, if you get a leader, and I won't name any leaders because I don't want to be sued by anybody because this is online. If you get a leader who says things that you wish you could say but you don't say, that's the kind of leader we validate because they're saying the things that we think. But then what tends to happen is that over time they step over the line and they start to get into the abusive territory. So we have to watch that we don't validate toxicity. Third one, what role does narcissism have to do with recruitment? And again, disproportionately in leadership are probably more people who have these tendencies. If somebody says, if somebody says, you know, I often hear this with, you know, with, with things that have happened through the world or sometimes in leadership, people say, if I was the leader, that wouldn't have happened. That's actually a narcissistic comment, you know. It's actually saying that you are greater 
or that you, that you are not prone to the failings of other people. So, I don't know um, whether, these, whether you've experienced these or not, but godly leadership is not about this stuff. Godly leadership is about explaining Scripture, modeling Scripture. That's godly leadership. So, I'm praying that my prayer for Connect is that when I cease to be the senior pastor here, that it will continue to grow and that people will continue to come to know Jesus. That's my prayer. So if we are to be that church, and this is partly why I'm really happy that Lee's moving into the role is because I feel that he, ha- he understands this. And so I just want to give you eight little pointers of what I think a healthy church should look like or healthy leadership looks like. First one is, Openness and organizational transparency. There is part of changing our constitution back in 2018 was to give greater transparency to leadership. It was to have defined terms of call. It was also to answer the question of responsibility, authority and accountability. Who was authorised to make decisions? Who wasn't? Who was responsible for decisions? Who wasn't? Who was accountable for decisions and who wasn't? And so this is why we need to have openness and organisational transparency. Third, secondly, leadership is about an invitation to follow, not a demand. It's not, leadership does not say, you must follow me. Leadership is exactly what Jesus said to the first disciples. Come follow me. Johnny Maxwell with the Faxwell, one of his great quotes is, you know if you're a leader, if you look over your shoulder and you've got people following you. Pretty obvious, really. Third one. If we don't think we can succumb to temptation of power, that's, a narciss- that's narcissistic thinking. Everybody's got a weak point. Everybody's got a place where they can cross the line. When people say to me, Oh, I would never do this, or I wouldn't. There's no way that that you know I would have an affair or this or that. Yeah, oh, I'm kind of going really. And, and you know, there are there are certain people in public life who have made commitments or who have been protested against things, and yet found that there was a pastor in Colorado who was very anti-homosexual, and yet it came out that he actually had a homosexual affair with somebody for many years it's kind of that line from Shakespeare you know methinks thou protesteth too much so we need to be aware of that number four the Bible is for edification encouragement and challenge not for weaponization to bolster a particular person's perspective I do not know How many times I hear people use Bible verses to cut others down? That is not what the Bible is intended for. The Bible is not intended to cut people down, to be weaponized. The Bible is intended to bring invitation and challenge. And that's brought about in relationship. Okay? 
If I don't have a relationship with you, I'm not going to challenge you personally to do something. I can challenge you from the front because that's my role and pray that the Spirit speaks to you. But in small group is really where that's going to happen. So the Bible is not for weaponization. Number five. We got five there, Sue? Yep, there it is. Certain words are used in a way that manipulate people to do something that someone else wants them to do. When I took over as senior leader 23 years ago, there were some words that were used that were highly manipulative. Words like mission, evangelism, loyalty. And people, I remember, we we couldn't use those words for eight years because people just got really burnt up about them. It's like in, you know when you're in a relationship with somebody and they say, oh, if you really loved me, you'd do this, this and this. If you really loved me, you'd lend me $5,000. If you really loved me, you'd do this for me or that for me. Some of you have experienced that in personal relationships. Be wary of it, of leaders. If you're really, words like, if you were really committed, you'd be at everything we put on. And I'm sure the goal of some churches is to keep people busy every night of the week so they don't have a life. You need a life. Number six, God wants all of us to be accountable for our actions, high-profile leaders included. Everybody's accountable for what they do. We live and die on our decisions, folks, regardless of whether we're a leader or we're not. If you make a good decision, it'll pay out in the long term. If you make a bad decision, it's going to bite you down the track. And everybody's the same. And the notion... Anyway... No, I won't go down the rabbit hole. Just, let's, just, let's just leave it at that. Number seven. God doesn't love leaders more than others. God loved Moses because of his humility, not because of his position, folks. God loves you and wants you to be intimate and humble with him to be as close as you possibly can. It's not about earthly position, It's about humility before the Father. Number eight, we are aware of power and leaders of their positional power. We need to make sure that we understand what comes with our role. We need to understand that because we are in a position, and and you might not be in a position of authority like an official one, like a pastor or a ministry leader or a prayer leader or whatever, you might have just been around here for yonks and people respect you because you're here. You need to be aware of that. And make, it's, like, it's like the footballer who says, you know, I'm, I, I signed up to play football not to be a role model to young people. Well, duh, that goes with the territory. And the same with us. Some of you who are older, some of you have been here longer than me and I've been here for a long time. I'm a little bit crusty, and, and 
your responsibility is to be a good model of faith in the situation that you find yourself in and to encourage the younger ones. And when I say younger ones, those younger than you. For some of you, I am the younger one. So we need, and people my age. So we need to make sure that we do that. Anyway, that's not a, that's not a concise list. That is just a something that we need to be aware of. Anyway, the last thing I want to talk about is our theology. Theology plays a role in how we exercise and accept power and abuse. God, good theology about reading the Bible as it was intended, not selective literal texts. The Bible was not written in isolation, folks. You realize that the chapter headings and the verse numbers that we have were probably included around the 13, 1400s, something like that. The printed Bible was around the 1400s with John Wycliffe. And just because there's a chapter heading and somebody has inserted a heading doesn't mean that the text after it wasn't included in the one before it. Do you know what I mean? We need a good theology. And, 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 and I think both ends of the spectrum are, are things we need to worry about. At this end of the spectrum, we need to watch the, what I would term the hyper-Calvinist position. And that is where we have this, pre, this idea that predestination is about those predestined to be saved. Can I tell you that Paul, when he writes, when he uses the term predestination, he is never talking about unsaved people. He's, talking, he's addressing it to people who are saved. Because you are saved, you are therefore predestined to act out in good works. That's pretty much what he's saying. So when you have this when people have a hyper-Calvinist view, what they tend to do is take passages out of context, use them to bolster what they're saying, and therefore abuse the Bible and abuse people that they're leading as they teach. The hyper-Calvinist theology to its natural conclusion suggests that some are destined to be saved and therefore some are destined not to be. And when I read scripture that says God so loved, we just sang it this morning, God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes will not perish but have eternal life. So that end of the spectrum, I think, if, if our theology is kind of down there, we're opening ourselves up to being manipulated and abused by leadership. And I could get on a hobby horse right now, but I choose to dismount. At this end, we have, I don't know whether you've heard it, I, had, I hadn't heard about it until recently, called the New Apostolic Reformation, where people are going around proclaiming themselves as apostles and prophets over churches and saying that pastors and churches need to be obedient to them because their thinking is that if churches do the things that they tell them to do, more people will be saved and therefore it will hasten the return of the Lord. Can I tell you, if you see that or you hear that, don't walk, run. To think 
that our actions can manipulate God to come back is arrogance at best. And I think that we need to make sure that we are not, um, we are not getting too caught down that rabbit hole. God doesn't call, um, uh, God doesn't call apostles to be dictatorial. I'm a continuist. I believe in all the gifts for today. But God doesn't call apostles to be dictatorial. In fact, when you read the scriptures, most apostles lived lives of poverty and were dual, were bivocational. So, if you see that, run a mile. If you see this, run a mile. Let's go back to what the Lord talks about scripturally. And leaders are about, I'll say it again, teaching scripture, modeling scripture. That's the lane they're in. That's what they're called to do. If you need financial advice, go and talk to a Christian financial advisor. If you need a mortgage broker, I know a good Christian guy, come and talk to me. But he's more qualified than I am. I can't tell you what to do there. Anyway, folks, my encouragement is don't be afraid of leadership. Be discerning. Let God, and let God be the one that you worship, not man or a woman. Let's pray. Father God, we want to thank you for being with us today. We thank you, Lord, for your guidance and your direction. We thank you, Father God, for the example of Moses and all that he's done. And Lord, we just, we're just so grateful for the, for the, for the way that you, you lead us as your people too. And Lord, we just, uh, we just want to bless you and thank you for today. Uh, in Jesus' name, amen.